0: Well, just imagine, supposing that this might happen. What if someone comes up to you and says, Tell me about Jesus. What do you say? Or maybe they ask a variant and they say, What do I need to know about Jesus? Where do you start? Do you start with God. What verse do you start with? The Bible's a big book after all. How do you get them pointed in the right direction? Well, I would suggest that might be a good idea to start with the words of Jesus, with what Jesus says about himself and what he's doing in the world. And that's what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first recorded sermon in Matthew chapter five, and so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five to read the first recorded sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's it's embedded in Matthew's gospel, which is. Uh, beautiful in and of itself, and so clear with what Matthew is trying to do. Matthew is trying to uh, convince us that Jesus is the long-awaited and promised king. He makes it evident in the Christmas story that that's what he's trying to do. Uh, There's a genealogy that says Jesus is king. There are wise men who come and Uh, give him gifts as though they were visiting royalty. And Matthew tells us in the opening lines that Jesus is king. Then as the story unfolds, we realize he's doing more than that even, that Jesus is not merely the uh, promised and long-awaited king, that he is a new and better Moses, that just like Moses, the king had tried to kill him at birth. Just like Moses, he had been called out of Egypt. Just like Moses, he, had, uh, he grew up in exile. Just like Moses, he wandered in the wilderness. And that's just in the first four chapters. And it's there that we find this Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 5, 6, and 7. And the reason that I wanted to try and set it in the Gospel of Matthew and tell you that the sermon is three chapters long is because the whole of the sermon is greater than the sum of its parts. The problem being <laughs> the problem being that we can't do the whole sermon this morning. So we have to figure out how are we going to talk about each part in a way that helps us to see, that the sum is greater than the parts. And so I don't want to succumb to the danger of thinking, this is really a cool part, now this is a really cool part. The whole thing is life-altering. And so Matthew begins in chapter 5 with these words. He says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and that's the commentary with which the sermon begins, that Jesus went up on a mountain, sat down, and started teaching. There are a few things that I think Matthew is trying to indicate there, pointers that he's giving us, that we need to notice as we read it. First of all, he went up on a mountain. He ascended a mountain. And when Matthew says that, he's drawing from a long tradition in the prophets of the mountains being the place where you receive divine revelation. And so he is alerting us to say that when you hear what Jesus is about to say, you need to recognize that this is a message from on high. You're also to notice that Jesus stands in the line of Moses. I mean, Moses went up on the mountain and received the law. Now you see Jesus going up on the mountain and not receiving, but giving this new declaration of what the kingdom will be like. I mentioned that this isn't a long line of the words of the prophets. uh, One of the most uh, significant is in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And I think that Matthew tells us, Yeah, we're going up to a mountain so you can see who God is. Well, Jesus went up onto a mountain, and then he sat down, which tells me that that his sermon was not like my sermon. Here I'm standing, and you're sitting. There he was sitting, and they were standing. I think we ought to do it that way someday. But The reality is, it wasn't just a matter of convention. That's what a teacher or a rabbi did. The teacher or the rabbi would sit and his students would gather around him and he would hold forth and dispense wisdom and insight into the way that the world worked. That's what we find our teacher doing as well, sitting down telling us this is the way the world's going to work. And so this Sermon on the Mount offers us two separate lenses by which we can view the world the first lens is the broad lens that helps us see what kind of person is in it makes up the kingdom of heaven what kind of person is invited in by jesus the beatitudes are jesus answer this is the kind of person who makes up my kingdom and you'll notice They're poor in spirit. They're mournful. They're meek. They're not the kind of person that I would qualify to make it into his kingdom. I would look at some other folks besides the poor in spirit or the meek or the mournful to suggest that they have a better chance, maybe, of making it into the kingdom. But Jesus wants us to know the kingdom is made up of these kinds of people. And this lens helps me assess the character of the kingdom of heaven, which is very important because the character of the kingdom of heaven itself is so different from the character of the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world do not function on meekness, they do not function on poverty. And so when we lay the kingdom of heaven across the kingdom of this world, we recognize that they don't fit together very well, and that's why we have troubles. The second lens with which I want to see the world is narrower and more personal. And it it invites the question, Am I in the kingdom? Do I qualify for the kingdom? It's really that broad lens that invites the question of this narrow lens where I might disqualify someone else because it doesn't look right. They don't look right. I might qualify myself when I have a very different view of the way the world works than Jesus did. Where I think that I I, I might take a view that... uh, Things, the world functions differently than Jesus thinks it functions, and I'll still talk myself into being good to go. This second lens helps me assess my own character. And the reality is, I'm going to be forced by Jesus to decide who I am and where I fit in the world. I'm going to have to say my identity is rooted in my relationship to Jesus as His subject in His kingdom. Or I have a whole host of other things that I can identify as. A whole host of other ways that I can get my identity and I'm invited to do that all the time. In these Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces us to a kingdom where life is really upside down. Or probably more accurately, it's the only place in the world where life is right side up. But you have to admit it is contrary and it does not work like the rest of the world works. So the Sermon on the Mount begins in verse 3, and it begins with Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, Ray Ortland says, set the tone for this new kingdom. The Beatitudes cast a vision for life that includes this implicit invitation, and I wanted to make sure you don't miss. The invitation. Because, yes, they say, this is what the kingdom is like. And then they say, don't you want to be part of it? They say, don't, wouldn't it be great if this is how everyone was? If life was right side up this way, wouldn't it be amazing? One commentator said the Beatitudes are the radical manifesto of a kingdom way of life because Jesus reveals who is in and who is not in. An Old Puritan uh, used this illustration. I say Old Puritan because it's from, uh, it's from the farm. He said the Beatitudes function like a plow where the sharp edge of the shovel turns over the soil of our hearts preparing it to recede the seed of the kingdom. And I say this all because I want you to brace for what you're about to hear Jesus say. So in verse 3, he begins his sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here in the Beatitudes, opening up for us this Sermon on the Mount, we see that the kingdom of heaven is, is unique, that those who are included and thriving are those you would least expect. I think Jesus means this sermon to be upsetting, to be at least discomforting. The commentary at the end of the sermon suggests that. He said, The people talked about the sermon, right? And they said, this is not like we normally hear in synagogue. This is not the message of the religious leaders of the day. I mean, after all, how long would you sit for a sermon that completely upset your understanding of what God wants? And I really want you to see that. I want you to recognize that this is so foreign to the way that we go about our business day to day. It's so foreign to the way we think about religion and the way that we re- relate to other people and to the world and to institutions. For instance, I, I decided I'd write my, my own Beatitudes that I hope are not that foreign from what you might write if you were commissioned to do the same. I would say it this way. Blessed are those who work hard, for they will be rewarded. Blessed are those who are generous, for they shall receive in return. Blessed are those who have a platform, for they shall wield influence. Blessed are those who are physically strong, for they will not get a bad case of COVID. Blessed are those who are wise, for they will make fewer mistakes. Blessed are those who finish school, for they'll have more opportunities. Blessed are those who are honest, for they'll have less to remember. Blessed are those who believe in themselves, for they shall be victorious. Blessed are those who know and exercise their rights, for they shall be free. I suspect that if you were to somehow catalog the expectations of the world around us about what makes life successful, it would sound a little bit like that, wouldn't it? It would not sound like poor in spirit, mourning, meek. And so I think Jesus wants to startle us and help us to recognize that His kingdom is upside down from the way that the world normally works. So before we just spend time on one beatitude after another, I just want to take a moment and and talk about how we read them. Because the the relationship of the beatitudes to the rest of the sermon, the relationship of the first part of a beatitude to the second part, it's so important that we get those. Because the beatitudes set up the rest of the sermon. They are the succinct statement of kingdom values. They provide an introduction to a world that is finally right side up. When we hear these Beatitudes, we hear Jesus say, this is the way I'm going to run my kingdom. Do you want in? Will you be part of it? Will you do it this way? You'll notice that the Beatitudes are memorable and beautiful because they have the same structure. Blessed are those blank for blank, right? Same structure on every one. What is the relationship of the first part to the second part? And then what is the essence of the blessing, I mean, John Calvin observes the same thing that you and I would observe when uh, he said that uh, people hold the erroneous belief that the happy person is the one who is free from annoyance, attains all his wishes, and leads a joyful, easy life. Pretty much that's how I'd write my Beatitudes. People have the mistaken idea that true happiness is about our present emotional state. And that is not how Jesus treats it. So what does it mean to be happy or blessed? What is it when when God says, blessed are those? Is it some divine uh, sort of cosmic blessing like the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine on you. Is it a supernatural improvement of your situation? Maybe the opposite of a curse or something? That might be one way to see it, but it isn't really that magical, I don't think. I think that the best way to see it is that it is like a proverb that describes the good life. It is a proverb that describes the way that life should work. It's more like the wisdom that comes from the sage who sits there and says, this is how you will make the best life possible for yourself. So to be blessed is to live, the life, is to live life the way that life was meant to be lived. Which, of course, is why John records Jesus saying, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's what he's saying here in these Beatitudes. This is the abundant life. And we're going to say, no, it can't be. Because it's poor in spirit. Because it's mourning. Because it's meek. These Beatitudes are probably best understood to be parallel to Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither. And everything he does... Will prosper. I think that's the way you're to understand blessed. So that the person who lives like these Beatitudes thrives. This is the way that someone would flourish in this world. This is not some supernatural magic wand that. You wave over a person's life in hopes that everything will work out. Rather, it is an acknowledgement of the way that life works under God's leadership. The Beatitudes are statements of the way that life works in the kingdom of heaven. Or to say it another way, this is how people experience being fully human. This is Jesus' version of the good life. This would be how men and women and boys and girls pursue their greatest happiness. Or in the terms of our church uh, mission statement, how we delight ourselves in God through Jesus. You might think of these Beatitudes in relational terms. I suppose that might help you. The person who is poor in spirit has such a relationship with God that he is then right at home in the kingdom of heaven. The person who is mourning experiences God in a way that his comfort and happiness are certain. The meek person who surrenders his rights has God as His defender. So inheriting the world is a small matter. As a prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting His hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. And I think that because... That's the way the sermon starts, but it's also the way the sermon ends. The the very last thing in the Sermon on the Mount, you've probably heard about it or sung about it, Uh, the the foolish man built his house on the sand, and the rains came and his house came tumbling down. That's how Jesus ends the sermon, with a life of non-flourishing, a life of saying, I will do life however I want. And Jesus only points out that that doesn't work. What works is this. This is how the world works. This is how people are fully human. One other thing I need to say about these beatitudes because you'll hear them you'll hear them wrongly, I think. I'm going to say it this way. They do not function like if and then. If you are poor in spirit, then you get the kingdom of heaven. If you mourn, then you get comforted. If only you're meek enough, you inherit the earth. And I say that because most of us read them that way. The small little word for makes us think that if we do the virtue in part one, we get the blessing in part two. Or to put it another way, all I need to do is to grit my teeth and try a little harder to be poor in spirit. I'm not even sure that's possible. Or to mourn a little more, or to be just a little more meek. That's the way we think this ought to work. If you if you read if you read the word for a little differently, it might help you. Blessed are the poor in spirit instead of for, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That would help us not have quite such a if-then kind of thing. If we're already poor in spirit. We live the good life because ours is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are already mourning can expect to be happy because they'll be comforted. Those who are already meek flourish because they will inherit the earth. And so he starts out by telling us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those whose spirits are impoverished. Who are spiritually empty. Who come to Jesus with nothing. That's who's happy. I just want to say, how can that be? How can that be? I mean, what, what would somebody have heard at the very first time when they heard this? What would they have understood Jesus saying? That he's sitting there standing, and He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, it must be important, because that's how he starts off. And I suspect there are really good reasons he started that way. I imagine that He had in mind most of us, people who appeared to have spiritual resources, those who were well healed in spirit, those who were wealthy in spirit, those who could put on the appearance that they've got it together. people who come to him thinking that they might contribute to his kingdom. And he says, that's not who I have in mind. The kingdom is not not for those who are spiritually adequate or together. It's not for those who are spiritual, but precisely for those who aren't. I think Jesus probably had in his crosshairs the religious leaders of his day. Their self-assertive, self-righteous, and self-congratulatory teaching was his foil. It's likely that he was saying all that they have taught you about what it means to be Christian is wrong. Now, it's so easy to not be poor in spirit, I was going to say to be arrogant, to be arrogant and think, well, of course, you know, that was the first century, they were going to get it wrong. We've had so much more, we're so much, bam, right? That's the problem. Would Jesus maybe say the same thing to us? Would he ask us to think twice about his kingdom? I mean, does the way that you view your faith or your church make you more proud, more concerned about your rights, more self-assured? Jesus says, I'm recruiting people for my kingdom who have no spiritual resources. And here's the key. They know it. They have no spiritual resources, and they know it. Their hands are empty, and they know. And they're the ones that will flourish, both now and forever. They'll be blessed. They're the ones who will inhabit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the least likely person is the most blessed. The empty person gets filled. The most impoverished person becomes the richest. The person who's in the worst shape spiritually is actually in the best shape. Now that should unsettle you. Because it's very easy to think, I'm pretty squared away. If you're thinking, I'm pretty squared away, then this should come as a wake up call. Because Jesus is after those who are spiritually broken and empty. But, if on the other hand, is all you could do to get to church this morning. All you could do to think of facing another person. To think of somehow just going and asking God, isn't there just a scrap you could give me? because I got nothing. Then guess what? This is absolutely the best news ever because that is exactly who Jesus is after. You have come to the right person and his name is Jesus. See, most of us meet with Jesus' words, I think, with some sort of yawn But when Jesus got started, Matthew summarizes and tells us that Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what are you to do if you come to church and you you got something going for you? And you're doing okay. And you think that you're, you know, all that. Well, you do what Jesus said, you repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it works differently than you think it works. And those who are successful in it it, are successful for different reasons than you think. So what do you do with that? You repent. You turn. You say, I've been upside down all along. Here I thought Jesus' words were upside down. I'm the one who's been upside down. And you turn. Because this tells me too About the nature of this kingdom. The nature of this kingdom is poverty and weakness. It's not strength and power. And it's when I realize that I'm poor that I have, that I spiritually flourish. And so the answer is not to try harder to be poorer, it's to repent. And follow Jesus in his right side up kingdom here. If we overestimate our own spiritual riches, we will underestimate the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, I don't know much. But by definition, you mourn because you don't feel blessed. You mourn because of your loss, not your gain. And he doesn't state here what you're mourning over. This isn't some rally to try a little harder, be a little sadder about your sins. It may be that. That's certainly part of it. But he simply says, if you are broken hearted, I have good news for you. This is exactly what Jesus said his entire mission was. When he first began to preach, the first um, sermon, or the first synagogue reading, let me say it that way, the first synagogue reading he gave was from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. We take grief as an indication that God doesn't really love us. My life is hard because God doesn't like me. And so we are sad, we mourn, we're grieved, we're disappointed. When, in fact, it's that very sadness that God makes a requirement for his kingdom thriving are those who are brokenhearted to be part of God's kingdom is to mourn because he doesn't leave us mourning he promises us great comfort flourishing are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. Because there comes a day when the world will finally turn all the way right side up and God will comfort those who mourn. So, it is the saddest people who are now the happiest. It is those who have received the greatest hurts who now receive the greatest comfort. It's the most broken-hearted people who find themselves at the center of God's comforting attention. Those who appear to have lost the most stand now because of Jesus to gain the most. Those who have suffered are now included in the greatest relief, the kingdom of God. Those who weep will now laugh. Those whose hearts break now have them mended. And I say, this is not the way that I think the world works. No, that is God's blessing. That's what it looks like when the world is right side up. If you have bad breaks, it's just the precursor to the good life that God promises when you're blessed. Then Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. One lexicon de- defines this by saying they are not overly impressed by a sense of their own importance. Another suggests that meekness is strength that accommodates to another's weakness. Somebody else Suggests meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man could possibly think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. And the reality is that however you define meekness, Jesus himself defines it. The best. Because he uses that word to describe himself in chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all who are weak and uh, weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your soul. And so we find this very blessing defined in the life of Jesus. What does it mean for Jesus to be meek? It means for Him to set aside His rights. Philippians 2 says He did not hang on to His right to be regarded as God, but emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, became obedient at death, even the death of the cross. Jesus had rights that he did not stand up for. Jesus had rights that he was willing to let go. Jesus had rights, and he set them aside so that you and I might become citizens of his kingdom. And now he says, blessed are those who are like me, who are me. This explains, really, doesn't it, why the kingdom, this right-side-up kingdom of God doesn't work very well with the kingdoms of this world. Why the kingdoms of this world work with power and money. And Jesus said, you know what? I'm not about my followers grasping for power or getting some voting block or my somehow my followers using their energy influence. He said, you know what? We're about being meek and setting aside that influence, setting aside that power. That's the way the kingdom works. I think it's funny how often people make fun of this beatitude. Blessed are the meek. Ha ha, we know that doesn't work. Yet they will inherit the earth. And so you have Jesus beginning now to lay out, what does this kingdom look like? Who's in? Who's not in? What is the character of the kingdom and what are the character of the people who live there? When we find that those who are most suited for life in the kingdom of God are those who are least qualified. It's those who are poorest in spirit that end up richest in life. It's those who are are happiest when they are mourning. Those who are strongest are those who withhold their strength the most. The richest are those who are spiritually poor because they have the kingdom. Those who lose and mourn in this life gain comfort in the kingdom. Those who recognize that they're not self important are happiest because they will inherit the earth. Don't you want to be one of them? Don't you want to be part of that kingdom? that works that way, wouldn't it be great if all the people you knew were poor in spirit, mournful, meek? Boy, they'd be easy to get along with. Don't you want to be part of that? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around and recognize the way I thought life worked was all upside down. And now Jesus wants to set it right side up so that it is the humble and the broken and the mournful and the poor that Jesus puts his arms around and said, let's do this kingdom life together. Don't you want to be part of it with Jesus? Let's pray. Oh, great God and Father, thank you that really you have invited us into the kingdom that you have so simply said, repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come to me, all who are tired and broken, and I'll give you rest for your souls. So, Father, we really do want to come with empty hands and empty pockets, with broken hearts, with rights that we refuse to use so that we might we might be part of your kingdom father would you create us your church your people into into your kingdom here on earth that we might enjoy it now and live the blessed life now and ultimately enjoy it forever We ask this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.